This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment, we hope you have a word with Dr. Andy Jones, KDBS's own host of Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. Last Wednesday, uh, when uh, legendary journalist Seymour Hirsch came here to the UCD campus, he uh, had two uh, meetings with uh, students and faculty. The second was at the Mondavi Center, and uh, we want to report on on that event uh, for you. But I'm sorry to say I did not attend a smaller earlier event on that same day, which uh, featured Cy Hirsch giving some tips about how to be a good writer. Dr. Andy Jones was one of the sponsors of that event, and hopefully he will have a report for us on what, uh, what people learned about uh, the writing skills of Seymour Hirsch, which are considerable. Mr. Hirsch is not just someone who's well-connected and, and, and not just someone who's a, a good field reporter. He also knows how to string the words together and tell the story. And, of course, we expect to hear from our good pal Will Durst before this segment's over. To begin the show, as we like to do with On This Date in History, we would note that on this date, which is October 25th in the year 1415, during the Hundred Years' War between England and France, Henry V, the young king of England, led his forces to victory at the Battle of Agincourt in northern France. The pivotal weapon for the British was the six-foot longbow. Perhaps some of you listening have seen uh, some of the movie versions of this. I'm thinking of the Laurence Olivier, I think, 1948 version, where there, to very dramatic effect, you see the English archers pull back and unleash this murderous volley on the French. Unfortunately for the bloodline of moi, well, it turned out that uh, my relatives were evidently among the French royalty on the receiving end of Henry V's longbow arrows. Well, at least that's the story according to my family genealogist. It turns out that although I am of Portuguese extraction, it was the Betancourt family of French nobility that left France and wound up down in the Madeira Islands. At least what was left of the Betancourts after Henry V got through with them. At any rate, uh, I can't absolutely verify that, uh, that uh, my family was on the receiving end of British arrows, but, uh, but I am certain of the fact that when Shakespeare got around to writing his play... He put some pretty stirring words in the mouth of King Henry V. Since I don't believe I can do them justice, we'll see if Dr. Andy can maybe recite some of those for us in segment two. And we will surely try and get Dr. Andy to comment also on the fact that on October 25th in 1854, in the Battle of Balaclava, English General James Thomas Brundell, 7th Earl of Cardigan, leads a charge of the Light Brigade Cavalry against a well-defended Russian artillery position during the Crimean War. His brigade suffered 40% casualties and was really a rather unmitigated military disaster, which did inspire Alfred Lord Tennyson's famous poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. And that one I'm positive Dr. Andy is going to want to uh, want to do for us. On October 25, 1896, Adolph Simon Oakes, new owner of the New York Times, first uses the paper's famous slogan, all the news that's fit to print. And finally, on this date in 1983, citing the threat posed to American nationals on the Caribbean nation of Grenada by that nation's Marxist regime, President Ronald Reagan orders a military invasion. 
To my understanding, no one was more surprised about the U.S. military invasion than the supposed threatened American nationals, who, despite what you may see on the military channel, were not threatened at all. This was basically a training exercise for further military adventurism to follow in the Reagan administration and subsequent administrations. Our quote of the day comes from the Reverend Martin Luther King, who once said, In the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And we may have used that one before, but you know what? It's worth using again. Our quip of the day comes from Charles Caleb Colton, who said, When you have nothing to say, say nothing. And I would like to add that, uh, by way of correction, on our... Uh, on Radio Parallax AM, which formerly was airing over uh, on the other side of the dial, we said uh, on our last program that that famous line from On the Waterfront, uh, it was you, Charlie, etc., was from Patty Chayefsky. We were wrong. Those are the words of Bud Schulberg. Since Patty Chayefsky was such a great writer, we're going to have a bonus quip from him today, which is as follows. Television is not the truth. Television is a goddamned amusement park. Television is a circus, a carnival, a traveling troupe of acrobats, storytellers, dancers, singers, jugglers, sideshow freaks, lion tamers, and football players. We're in the boredom-killing business. Our statistic of the day, according to USA Today, is that to beat traffic congestion and to get an early start on work days that often last 10 or more hours, one out of every eight U.S. workers now begins commuting before 6 a.m. Our joke of the day comes from uh, Gary Margolis. This is courtesy of Phil Proctor's website, which commented about the future George W. Bush Museum. In fact, according to tentative plans, these are some of the rooms that you'll be able to find in the George W. Bush Museum. There'll be the Alberto Gonzalez room, where you won't be able to remember any of the exhibits. There'll be the Texas Air National Guard room, which is nice because for that one, you don't even have to show up. There's the Hurricane Katrina room, which, which they expect to still be under construction. Also, the Walter Reed Hospital room. Unfortunately, they won't let you into that one. As well as the Guantanamo Bay room, which unfortunately they won't let you out of. Now, apparently at one point, there were, there were plans for a weapons of mass destruction room, but, but nobody could find the plans. They expect to have a Dick Cheney room, but that's going to be in an undisclosed location. Central to the museum will be the War in Iraq room. They note that after your first tour is finished, you can go back in and visit that one again and again. At the, at the museum gift shop, you'll be able to buy an election. And if no one's monitoring you, you'll be able to just steal one. And finally, monitoring the men's room, they expect to have some former U.S. senators. Anyway, we want to thank uh, Gary and Phil for that one. And I think at this point we should go to the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, this week was a good week for Oscar Wilde, who was voted the wittiest man in British history. The Irish-born playwright, whose famous last words were, either these curtains go or I do, narrowly beat out comedian Spike Milligan, whose gravestone is inscribed with the epitaph, 
I told you I was ill. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for the American system of justice, and I'd like to add perhaps all of us, when it was noted that the family of murder victim Ron Goldman was ordered to return O.J. Simpson's $22,000 Rolex last week after learning that it was actually a counterfeit worth about $100. The Goldmans won a wrongful death suit against Simpson that gives them rights to any jewelry he owns that is worth more than $6,000. But the watch didn't meet that standard. The watch was described as a people's Rolex knockoff made in China. And finally, it was an ugly week for alternative health care practices last week when a dentist, this is actually a local news story, when a dentist was accused of fondling the breasts of 27 female patients and then told the judge he was merely manipulating the women's pectoral muscles to relieve jaw pain caused by temporomandibular joint disorder. And as a physician, I'm here to inform you that while TMJ can be a significant problem, it is in fact not standard medical practice to massage the pectoral muscles of your patients. This is not to say the practice is devoid of value. It may be a, a very valuable practice in certain applications, just not for TMJ as far as we know. From, uh, from the files of Marilyn Vos Savant, who about once a month we like to quote on this program, I noticed uh, a morning or two ago that the heater kicked on about the time that the sun rose, which reminded me of, of an item in her column from a couple months ago, which I've been saving. The question was asked of Marilyn about this issue. A man named Kurt wrote and said, When I'm out hunting before the sun rises, the air seems warmer than it does after the sun rises. Can this be true, or is it my imagination? Replied Marilyn, it's true. Assuming a clear night with no change in weather, air temperature drops by the hour as the earth loses heat. The loss continues past the time the sun starts to rise and until enough solar energy is received to first slow, then stop, and finally reverse the flow of energy. The turnaround takes up to an hour or so. So there is, in fact, no screeching halt of this process at dawn. And now you know the rest of the story. All right, from the Only in America file, also from the Week magazine, we have this item. A Pennsylvania woman is facing up to 90 days in jail for swearing at an overflowing toilet in her own home. Don Herb admits she used some four-letter words near an open window when she discovered that her toilet was leaking down into her kitchen. Her neighbor, a police officer, took offense and had her cited for disorderly conduct. Doesn't make any sense, said Herb. I was in my house. It's not like I was outside or drunk. And uh, speaking about what might be okay behavior outside, we have some input now from our good pal, Will Durst. Well, thanks, Doug. And today I want to talk about the latest California politician, who turns out to be nuttier than a water-skiing squirrel. Talking about the San Jose mayor, who has called for a ban on smoking outdoors. 
Yeah, and then it's going to be no smoking in your cars or in your apartments. Oh, yeah, sure, cigarettes are still legal to make and to buy and to possess. You just can't use them anymore. Except outside, 20 feet from any doorway, down the alley, next to the dumpster. What the hell? Get in the dumpster and pull the dumpster lid in on top of you, you lousy smoker, you. Now, I'm not a sub-anthropoidal mutant. I can totally understand the whole non-smoking in restaurants and on airplanes deal, but for crumbs sake, outside? People, settle down. We've finally turned the corner off of Nerd Alley onto Weenie Lane. What happened to that fist-in-the-buffalo's-face pioneer spirit that jump-started this country? We've become a nation of weenies, wimps, and whiners. California already has a law requiring kids under the age of 18 to wear bicycle helmets when riding bicycles. I mean, come on, what's next? You get to prohibit running with scissors, too? Make walking downstairs with your hands in your pockets a crime? Outlaw forks. Forbid fire. Restrict the use of soap within a 12-foot radius of bathtubs. Set stings for medicine culprits trying to walk and chew gum at the same time. Require seatbelts in bed. License zippers. You know what? Sometimes people do stupid things. Sometimes you should let them. Just so the gene pool doesn't get too polluted. It's called thinning out the herd. Darwin spoke of it. Glowingly. For Parallax Radio, I'm Will Durst. Let's, let's, let's take a little excursion into the politically correct uh, for the remainder of this segment. Evidently, in August of this year, the New York City Council, which earlier this year outlawed the so-called N-word, was considering a, a symbolic ban on the words bitch and ho. Supporters of the new bill admit that, like the N-word ban, the law would be hard to enforce, particularly as the word bitch can refer inoffensively to a female dog said David Fry, host of the New York's annual Westminster Kennel Club dog show, I think we'd be grandfathered in. And what about the gardener that used to do some hoeing in his backyard? What's he going to say when he's looking for one in the local hardware store? Personally, this correspondent has always found it rather odd that you can tune into any episode of black entertainment television or listen to, uh, to, to rap videos and hear such language just as a matter of routine. In fact, it's considered highly acceptable for use by some people and highly unacceptable by use for those who are not in the club. I think it's time we as a society made up our minds uh, as to whether it's a bad word to be shunned by all or to whether it's we're just going to, you know, let it go. I don't have the answer on this one, but I am puzzled by the fact that uh, uh, there's a certain inequality in how, uh, you know, it, its use is viewed. We'd like to add also that we think Don Imus is just an ass, regardless of the language he uses. And we note, unfortunately, it appears that Don Imus is going to be back on the air soon. That's according to Howard Kurtz, writing in the Washington Post uh, last week. Less than six months after his long-running radio program was terminated in an uproar over a racial remark, the I-Man now expects to be back on the radio around December 1st. 
IMUS and Citadel Broadcasting are near agreement on a multi-million dollar deal that would give the acerbic talk radio host the morning drive time slot on WABC, Citadel's New York flagship. You know, my sister and brother-in-law kept telling me I needed to listen to Imus a few years back. Boy, he was hilarious. I tried. He's not hilarious. He's not insightful. He's not amusing. He's not interesting. I don't know why anyone would listen to Don Imus, whether he's being politically correct or not. On the other hand, I'm, I'm feeling quite approving of some semi-non-PC remarks made by Senator Barack Obama a couple of months ago. In fact, we've been sitting on this one since Father's Day. Apparently, a couple days before Father's Day, Barack Obama presented a plan for lifting up poor families, which included a searing criticism of fathers who abandon their responsibilities to raise children. Said the senator, quote, There are a lot of men out there who need to stop acting like boys, who need to realize that responsibility does not end at conception who need to know that what makes you a man is not the ability to have a child, but the courage to raise a child. The Illinois senator, who as a child had little contact with his Kenyan father, except occasional letters, drew on his own life story as he spoke, describing the difficulties of growing up without a father. He noted that without support from his father, he and his mother at times turned to food stamps to make ends meet. In what had been described as the senator's first major speech uh, on poverty, In America, he stressed the role absentee fathers have in contributing to the economic misfortune, particularly among African Americans. He said, quote, Too many black men simply cannot afford to raise a family, and too many have made the sad choice not to. A fatherless household takes its toll. Children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and nine times more likely to drop out of school. Some uh, inspiring words from the senator from Illinois. And in some less inspiring words, we would note that that upon his arrival in Great Britain uh, last week, Nobel laureate James Watson got himself embroiled in a bit of hot water. Interviewed for the Sunday Times, the 79-year-old geneticist said he was inherently gloomy about the prospect of Africa because, quote, all our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours whereas all the testing says not really. James Watson said he hoped that everyone was equal, but countered that, quote, people who have to deal with black employees find this not true, unquote. Now, this is unfortunate. Uh, this, this correspondent had a chance to see uh, James Watson when he came to visit here on the UC Davis campus back in the 1970s. He spoke at 194 Chem to a packed house. Dr. Watson, of course, along with Francis Crick, are are the two discoverers of the helix, the double helix structure of the DNA molecule. Watson's writing about it in the book, The Double Helix, is also one of the classics of science, uh, science literature. Another classic he wrote was his textbook, The Molecular Biology of the Gene. This, however, is hardly the first time Dr. Watson has got himself embroiled in a bit of controversy. It seems quite clear uh, from, from day one back in the 1950s, uh, when he and Francis Crick deciphered the DNA structure, that they were totally dependent upon some of the research of others. In particular, the X-ray crystallography of Rosalind Franklin, a uh, scientist they were working alongside. When uh, Rosalind Franklin wasn't forthcoming enough uh, about sharing her data, at least according to the boys' perspective, they had someone in her lab leak the pictures of DNA to them, which they were able to use to good end. 
Isaac Asimov uh, basically referred to it as a case of scientific thievery. And one certainly could make the case for that. And I'm certain that someone here at this university with a strong background such as we have here in the genetics department and elsewhere, someone's going to have an opinion on this. And please, why don't you share that with this program by sending us an email to info at radioparallax.com. And I think at this point, it would be a good time to take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We're going to talk uh, science and Seymour Hersh in our second segment. Stay tuned. Thank you. 